But it occurs to me that at this moment in time, it may be more important for us to talk about what Jews and Presbyterians agree about, what are our common, especially uh, mainline uh, Presbyterians uh, and reform Jews in the reform movement, the things that we agree upon and which are really important to us um, in terms of public policy, in terms of um, human rights, uh, things that we really agree upon that uh, appear to perhaps and it seems be like under attack. Every day we get something new to talk about. So, so it's, uh, uh, my sense is, you know, the things that we have talked about in the past where we have some real differences haven't gone away and we'll still need to talk about those in 2017. But uh, 2017, I think, has really brought us to a different place where it's important for uh, Jews and Presbyterians to talk about the things that we agree on and how we're going to help our communities be mutually supportive in pursuing those things that we um, that we really agree on. Um, Jonathan? So, um, so I was thinking about like what are some of these things that we agree on, um, and again, even about the notes that I made uh, last week when we talked about this again, and then the notes I was scribbling down yesterday and uh, and this morning are somewhat different. They have many of the same many of the same things in them. Um, uh, for instance, you know, refugees in a sense are not a um, uh, a new issue for me, right? At the high holy days, so this last uh, October. Um, I gave one of my four sermons was on refugees. So um, it wasn't uh, off the radar. It was already something we were talking about. And um, I actually thought that uh, under the previous administration, we weren't doing nearly enough uh, in for refugees and refugee uh, uh, resettlement and, um, and things like that. Um, but I think that there's a lot of places that we um, come together. Um, uh, you know, the narrative for most Christians and certainly for most Jews um, is one that one of our primary tasks is to, um, is to reach out to the vulnerable, to the, uh, you know, certainly the, the Hebrew scriptures talk a lot um, about the, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, um, and those are really categories in the ancient world that are the categories of those who don't have protectors. Right, who are who are vulnerable, and we could add others to those that fit well into those uh, categories today. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, the, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the uh, exhortation, um, in one form or another, because it's not exactly worded the same each time, but basically, you know, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Do not oppress the stranger, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The stranger shall be to you as the native, uh, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Lots of forms of that, but that's the exhortation that appears more than any other, right, With uh, within the Hebrew Bible. More than 35 times uh, we see that um, show up. It's part of the, the way in which uh, personal slash communal narrative uh, helps to shape identity. And, of course, the text that I'm less familiar with, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the narrative, the Jesus narratives are, um, Jesus is also reaching out to those who are the, um, the most vulnerable in society, grows out of this Hebrew Bible tradition and out of the prophetic tradition um, to reach out in, in different kinds of ways. So, um, 
you know, we think about refugees today perhaps more than on other days because of the last 24 hours, but, you know, the poor, um, uh, the uh, building of a world of kindness and compassion, how do we approach the issues of homelessness, uh, what are the uh, challenges of income inequality uh, within our society, what does it mean to see other human beings as created in the image of God. Right. All of those things are things that um, we, and we in a larger level in the interfaith community in, in our area, are engaged in conversation about and sometimes um, in action about uh, in various uh, kinds of ways. Um, uh, finding uh, you know, friendship in different kinds of ways with people who may feel marginalized and, and put on the outside. So I think all of those things are important pieces of, of that puzzle. Um, and uh, this isn't scripted in quite the same way as our <laughs> sermon in the church, so I'll, I don't want to just fill the time, so I'm going to let Karen comment on it. Well, it occurs to me that um, one thing Jews and Presbyterians had to talk about um, recently is that there has been an uptick in hate crimes, and in and among those hate crimes have been uh, anti-Semitic crimes, mm -hmm. uh, the big uh, Seminary in Cincinnati, the most historic Jewish seminary, had swastikas, you know, spray painted on it. Other Jewish community centers and synagogues have experienced that. Um, is that, um, you know, how, I get, how is that being experienced by your community? And, you know, how would you, what will we need to do to help you know that we're your allies and mm -hmm. we've, got help, we've got your back on some of that? Yeah, so I think in this sense it's, um, not just a Jewish issue, but is, is a Jewish issue. It's certainly more a Jewish issue in the sense of um, Jews being uh, a minority who doesn't fit into uh, the, uh, the future of uh, white America that some people uh, talk about. Um, but Jews are part of that larger constellation of Jews and people of color and Muslims and other kinds of things. Um, uh, it's less of a, a personal issue in the Jewish community, at least in the liberal Jewish community, because people aren't personally identifiable, right? So in Orthodox communities, there's a, a greater sense of threat that people feel, because if they're wearing a kippah in the street, or you know, dressed as, uh, as ultra-Orthodox Jews might be in black with hats and fringes hanging out, then that's a bigger issue, and that's true particularly for Muslim women as well, who are often identifiable and, and get targeted um, in that way. Um, but I do think that um, there's sort of, within the Jewish identity too, um, we've become pretty comfortable in America and there's something very, um, I don't know what the proper word is, uh, but um, there's something that's very agitating about sort of a rise in uh, anti-Semitic incidents. Um, it's, uh, over the last decade, they've been rising in Europe and other kinds of places, and, uh, and you know, we've seen more uh, in the United States. Um, so far, uh, fortunately, uh, in the United States, they've been either property crimes or threats, like the 30-plus you know, bomb threats of Jewish community centers around the, uh, the United States um, that haven't come to fruition. but. Uh, but uh, you know, there's that that disease 
certainly that comes from that. And I think that we stand with each other in, in standing against that kind of ideology that forces, that causes that, I think, is where we need to be. I know one thing that the two of us have talked about over the years is that uh, almost 40 years ago, when um, the Presbyterians and the and CPC and TBI began this exchange, sort of Christian-Jewish dialogue was really like at the cutting edge of you know kind of what what interfaith dialogue was about in those days, and that in the years the intervening years, especially say in the last ten or fifteen years, the frontier has moved, and it's much more of a, a multilateral kind of conversation of Christians and Jews, Jews and Muslims, Christians and Muslims, Christians and Muslims and Jews, people outside the Abrahamic faiths, Buddhists, Hindus, um, people of no faith at all. Um, so I wonder, uh, how do you see um, sort of the developments of, uh, say, the last six months? Um, how is, is that creating you know, new opportunities or new challenges in that? Uh, I see just in this last, uh, the last 48 hours since this ban on immigration, the, the refugee thing, that um, you know, Jews and Muslims are coming together as uh, you know, the, your, the Jewish history, which on my father's side is my, you know, this was really true for my, you know, my, some of you may know my father's family is Jewish, so they were trying to leave Europe um, at the time when the World War II was breaking out, and they couldn't get through the, pro the process fast enough, and the, border, the war broke out, and the borders closed, and they had to stay. Um, so, uh, so that's part of that narrative of, you know, not being, able, you know, being excluded from immigration. To this country, uh, so that's kind of I see that as has brought the Jewish community and the Muslim community together in a way that wasn't true even six months ago. Um, well, I think that, that moving. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a sense, you know, um, for Jews, um, law and custom and policy, I think, often grow out of narrative, right? So. We've talked about, I've talked about the narrative of you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and you have this kind of element to that. Um, but we've had a lot of other narratives since the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that we've uh, been expelled from most countries in the world that we've lived, that we were, that we, uh, were equal citizens in the places um, that we lived. The, the stories of Jews trying to come to this country in the, in the, um, 1930s um, and uh, not being able to land mm -hmm. the, the isolationism and xenophobia of that time. Um, reading newspaper editorials from the 1930s, um, if I were to take the word Jew out of them and put Muslim in them, you would think they were some of the, the things that we read about today. You, you wouldn't know the difference Jews bring you know, Jews are violent, they bring crime, they're, you know, all these kinds of things. Those are the things that, that uh, we read. So for me, sometimes part of the, the test is, you know, switch the words. Um, you know, if we took some of the proclamations that come out and, and put Jew in them or, or something else, how, how would we respond um, to those proclamations? I think there are, there are, there are things that bring us um, together. Um, I think um, part of our human nature, unfortunately, is we, we can't focus on everything, right, all the time. So, um, you know, Jews have always uh, sort of been for 
more open immigration policies for refugees, because generally Jews think that uh, that uh, an open, I think even a self-interested thing, that open societies mm -hmm. tend to be places that Jews do well, and societies that become protectionist, protectionist and um, walled off and uh, nationalistic in their perspective. Um, that nationalism tends to, over time, exclude Jews from being part of the society. So um, whether it's because of altruism or whether it's because of uh, self-protection, I think in general, um, you know, that's where, uh, where we've seen ourselves. Um, and, um, you know, Jews have been part of shaping that American ethos, whether it be Emma Lazarus writing a poem that ends up uh, being put on the Statue of Liberty, yeah. right? It wasn't part of the original statue. It was uh, part of a fundraising campaign to uh, build the pedestal for the for the statue. And uh, uh, but you know that poem became associated with the Statue of Liberty, and it was part of her Jewish immigrant story that she chose to put there. Whether it be um, as I as I mentioned a little bit, um, you know the ways that Jews have. Um, tried in their way uh, to influence, um, in our way, to influence uh, American culture. Um, so when we talk about the, um, whether it be Jewish humor, which tended to poke, uh, poke fun at exclusionary uh, kinds, of, kinds of elements, whether it be um, the, uh, you know, whether it be writing Porgy and Bess, which uh, you know, was about a, an African-American experience, or West, or West Side Story, which highlighted a Puerto Rican uh, experience in New York, or um, whether it be these, these various elements that um, uh, Jews tried to bring into the American popular culture uh, were tended to be about expanding the idea of what America was, um, both for Jews, but also um, other groups. Uh, for other groups as well, um, and um, I think that became uh, that's become part of uh, the Jewish identity. But uh, but for many of us, it's become part of how we what we believe should be the bedrock values of an American identity as well. Um, I wonder about sort of basic democratic principles. Like when I was in confirmation class, uh, going you know learning about Presbyterian history. Um, well, what, one of the things they told us was, you know, the fact that uh, the Presbyterians come out of the uh, tradition in Scotland that wanted to get rid of bishops, you know, it was very democratic, you know, the, the idea that uh, the queen or the king would not appoint the priests that would come to you, that that's something, you know, the congregation elects its own, you know, pastors, calls its own pastors, um, elects a, a session, a board of elders that rule the church as opposed to one single priest sort of saying what's going to happen. Um, you know, we were made to be, feel very proud that sort of the democratic tradition had, in a part, you know, sort of grown out of the Presbyterians that had come to the United States from Scotland and brought these democratic values um, with us. But, uh, you know, it also occurs to me that uh, this sort of anti-authoritarianism is also a very strong strain in the Jewish tradition as well. So I think it's... Um it's in two ways a strong strain for us, which is I think even in traditional Judaism, um, where there generally was one answer to legal questions, right? Although that answer might change through the gener through the generations, there was generally an answer in the 
traditional Jewish world. Um, one of the things that was always true in Jewish tradition is that the minority voices were preserved in the text. So that in a, in a Talmud argument or in the Mishnah, you have, um, which are codes of Jewish law, the year 200, the year 500 or so of the, the common era, that um, the arguments are preserved. That also allows you to come back in future generations and we look at the arguments that were there and perhaps the outcomes become different uh, in, a, in a different generation. Um, uh, and leadership in the Jewish community, who was the rabbi of the community, um, you know, it wasn't inherited, it wasn't whatever, it was generally the person who had the most people that thought that they saw them as their teacher, right? I mean, it was democratic in that sense. Not that it was democratic in the sense of like, should we have this rule, should we not, let's vote. <laughs> but um, but who's, who are the, the rulers? Um, the reform movement has, I think, a, a greater sense of that, um, that democracy. Um, you know, we do in, a, uh, in America where we resemble religious movements much more than it does in the rest of the world. Um, you know, congregations have great autonomy, um, also call their own rabbis or, or leaders. Um, uh, but there's also a sense of personal autonomy in Reform Judaism, so that um, you know, Jewish law, in a sense, uh, stealing from uh, Mordechai Kaplan, who was uh, actually a professor at the Conservative Movement's seminary, but um, that Jewish law has a vote but not a veto, right? That um, personal conscience and uh, moral sensibility, the, the um, becomes part of the, the autonomous decisions of each person. And so while we make communal decisions, obviously, about like practice, what does our worship look like, or what level of Jewish uh, dietary laws are observed in the temple kitchen, or right, those kinds of things, um, there's a, also a sense that uh, each individual within the community has the opportunity to uh, shape Jewish tradition in a way that's meaningful. <coughs> to them. Um, and uh, so there's great diversity in uh, liberal Jewish life, not only on the congregational level, where Reformed congregations may look very different from each other, as Presbyterian congregations would, uh, across the, the, even across the United States, uh, let alone across the world. Um, but, the, um, but certainly the practice of individual Jews um, you know, I think about the fact that, um, especially at the High Holy Days, when people come out of the woodwork, right, that are uh, not necessarily never there. I know, never <laughs> Christmas and Easter doesn't happen here ever. Yeah. Um, but when people come out of the woodwork, and I think about, like, you know, the number of people who are sitting in the congregation who, I don't maybe they don't believe a word of the prayer book, right? Some of the people who are there, or... Um, people are there for all sorts of different reasons, right? Um, the diversity of theology, the diversity of connection to Jewish life, the diversity of uh, folks who even, you know, there's lots of folks there who, who are connected to Jewish community but wouldn't necessarily say they were Jewish, right? Because um, they're part of a Jewish family but aren't necessarily formally Jewish themselves. So um, a whole bunch of different folks who come together to form the Jewish community, and all those voices together, in a sense, shape who we are and what we do. Well, and then we still do have those things that we have disagreed about in the past, but I also think sort of the playing field has shifted there um, with the, you know, the changes 
in administration. I think my sense of it is we had disagreements and discussions which were sometimes quite str strong, but there was you know a boundary that we kind of, especially when we would dialogue with uh, Jews in the Reform tradition, you know, we this sort of the two-state solution, um, the idea that settlements were a problem that needed to be resolved. Um, those were sort of givens, mm -hmm. even though we disagreed about mm -hmm. how we would get there and how big the problem it was and you know how it should be resolved. I get the sense that that's kind of all up for grabs now, um, given sort of uh, President Trump's, uh, mm -hmm. some of the statements that he has made and what Netanyahu has then done in response to those statements. Um, <clears throat> what, what's your sense of how we need to talk about that or how that's changed? or? Um, I, it's, it's actually sort of hard to know at this moment exactly because it hasn't quite played out yet. Um, and there are a lot of internal politics um, going on in Israel too. Um, Netanyahu might be indicted on some other corruption charges and that could change things too. Internal Israeli politics, right? That seems to happen. The last few Israeli prime ministers have been indicted and left office eventually for, for, uh, for something. Um, the, uh, I would say, by the way, that it's not that they're more corrupt than anybody else, but yeah, actually that yeah. the, system, um, the system gives great autonomy to, uh, to uh, judicial authorities, and so uh, they uh, uh, often are, are able to be uh, indicted for things that in other countries the political powers wouldn't allow those things to, to happen for. Um, but I think they're real... They're real issues. I mean, for those of us who believe, and we may believe them even for different reasons, that the, a two-state solution is the best solution to uh, the challenges uh, for Israel and Palestinians in the Middle East. And um, for me, I believe that because I'd like Israel to be a majority Jewish state, and I'd like it to be a democratic state with full equality for all of its citizens and um, uh, demographics, if you don't have two states, don't allow both of those things to be true um, simultaneously and um, you either move to a, a one-state solution which, uh, in which there is no Jewish majority and which many feel would lead to kind of civil war within society um, or you really do move over time to, um, the only way not to have that is not to have a democratic state, to really move into a codified way to a, uh, uh, a system of two sets of laws that you know, starts moving toward an apartheid kind of a, kind of a system. And that's also not something that uh, um, either I could support or I think most of the Jewish world would be able to, uh, to, uh, to stomach. Um, so I think those are uh, real challenges, um, and uh, you know what's going to happen and how those things will play out is uh, both an issue of internal Israeli politics and uh, American uh, politics. Um, I think the great challenge, uh, you know, there's a, a tension there somewhere between. Um, which is, you know, how do we get, uh, I think most people, at least people who believe in a two-state solution, could basically draw out what that, you know, proposals have been on the table so many times that they've been relatively close, that we know the broad parameters of what that would look like, um, how to get the, uh, 
the Israelis and the Palestinians to um, uh, to drop certain demands that uh, everybody knows cannot be part of a final solution um, is sort of the great challenge. And there right now don't seem to be statesmen on either side um, in the Middle East. Um, uh, the Israeli government seems to be much more concerned about staying in power, and uh, Abbas certainly has seemed to be more concerned um, about uh, the livelihood of his own uh, government and uh, aren't really willing to, uh, haven't been willing to take their own political risk to do that. So I guess one of the questions becomes, you know, how do we, um, you know, our power is really mostly over uh, an American government. Um, how much our American government chooses to listen to what folks uh, care about is a is a larger is a larger question, um, uh, and there may also be ways to encourage uh, the Arab world um, to offer inducements to both the Palestinians and to the Israelis that would uh, make it worth their while to to uh, come together. Um, and that's actually a possibility now in ways that, uh, you know, I mean, ironically, right, Israel has, is, is, you know, in certain ways still officially at war with many of the Arab countries, but the Arab countries that see um, Iran and uh, as, a, as a major threat in the Middle East have seen their, um, their interest align with Israel in many ways and are cooperating quietly on all sorts of issues behind behind the scenes, and they all see it in their interest uh, as well to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian uh, question. Whereas at one point they saw it in their interest to maintain the Israeli-Palestinian problem. That as long as their enemy in the was going to be Israel in the Middle East, having the Palestinians be refugees was in their interest. Um, now that they see Israel as a potential ally in the Middle East. Um, they prefer to have that problem resolved. So that's a, another new factor in the you know in the last uh, you know fewer than ten years in a sense that has begun to emerge in many ways. Well, we've talked a lot. Um, we have Jews, Jews and Presbyterians in this room. I wonder if there are uh, thoughts that you might have about things we need to talk about together and the ways we should talk about them and the, the forums here locally that, that are open to us for that. You, so I have a question. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the values that are similar for both religions. Um, and probably, most likely, as far as values goes, the family values and uh, liberty and freedom, the same for the Muslim community. What can we do besides writing Congressman and the president. I choke on those on that work um, and um, those in power and join organizations. I've joined organizations in the last five days that I have in my life that support um, that give them monetary and voice support uh, anti to what the administration is currently doing. What else can we do? You know, I think that's an open question at this point, um, partly because it's not clear what kind of action and leverage will work. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, 
at one point, you know, you would think you know, writing your representative would have some impact. I'm, you know, I think we're we're trying to figure out exactly what has impact, what has leverage. Um, certain things that you would think would have been just political suicide for anyone to say or do or to be attributed to your party are not not beyond the pale anymore. So um, I would, you know, there we have some historians and political scientists in the room might be interested in, you know, if you have any greater insight on that than, uh, than Jonathan or I might as congregational leaders. Not that long ago, I went to a show at the University of Vermont, okay. and these two girls got up and they read um, out some poem, this horrible letter that somebody had sent to our mosque school of knowledge, and then that letter went public. So what the students did was they asked us to write letters to the mosque just saying we support them and we're not their hate name. Love letters to the mosque. Love letters That's what they to call the them, right? So I don't know that that helps anything on a political level, but it helps generate the heart, the friendship, mm -hmm. and just letting our neighbors know that we are your neighbors. Mm -hmm. And in the event of someone pounding on your door, yeah, you can come hide out in my, in my house, right? Mm -hmm. Just letting them know that we are the haven here in our community? Yeah. Um, I do think um, calls are better than emails, particularly because emails have become so easy with um, social media stuff, and uh, they get thousands and thousands of them. Um, although they shut down the White House switchboard yes. the other day because they were getting too much many calls, and they just had a message saying, please give comments through our website. But, the, um, but in general, calls are, are more effective. They get more attention from members of Congress. Um, uh, the, I think we need to thank our members of Congress when they stand with us on particular issues because believe me, they hear plenty from the folk that they, they hear more from the people who disagree with them, from the people that agree with them. And I think if we look at, for instance, there have been a number of uh, Congress people, at least three, I think a fourth today from the President's party who have um, come out at least against the broadness of the refugee um, uh, executive order. Um, and uh, they need to gain, get support too. I mean, they need to have people thank them for, for that. It's not easy to buck your own party in our highly politicized partisan uh, system. So I think any ways we can uh, support those folks and boost them up, I think, is, is helpful. Um, and uh, so while I think we need to be active on that level, I think there's also lots of stuff that we can do, you know, as Ellie started to point to, um, on the local level and on the state level. And again, we have local governments and state governments who are also part of this. Uh, now, just speaking right now about refugees, but we could go to lots of other issues, uh, have engaged in this and taken stands on this, on this, uh, on this, uh, in this fight, so to speak. Including and, uh, Claremont itself. Including Claremont and Pomona and lots of other kinds of, uh, the state of California, um, other kinds of things. And, um, you know, how do we, uh, you know, support those efforts uh, as well? Um, and of course, there'll be large legal battles. There have already been lawsuits filed. So the, people, the organizations that are filing those lawsuits, I know you've already mentioned, you've joined a whole bunch. Um, but they're going to need support to do that. It's not inexpensive or, uh, or easy to, uh, uh, to, to do that. And um, uh, 
And by the way, it also means that, you know, when, um, from my perspective, some would have disagreed with me, um, but, uh, you know, from my perspective, it also means that uh, if there are issues, whether they be in, uh, uh, you know, jobs or infrastructure or other kinds of things like that, that, um, that are issues that we normally want to push, you know, my perspective is push them. Um, you know, I know there are some who say, you know, don't work with it, don't work with people at all or do those kinds of things, but it's not just about the administration, it ends up being about Congress and long-term issues. How do we build support for the issues that we believe in? Um, it's not ever about just today and today's battle. It's about um, shaping a conversation um, in other kinds of ways. I mean, if you take healthcare for a moment and you just take like the Affordable Care Act, we, you know, on one hand, people can be despairing if you're a supporter of the Affordable Care Act as, you know, it's et cetera, et cetera. But it's totally changed the conversation, right? The, it's, I mean, it's changed, the, the conversation now isn't just about how do we repeal the Affordable Care Act and all the people who had insurance won't have insurance. People are now forced into a very different kind of a conversation. Um, and the conversation is now, gosh, we have to replace it. We can't kick people off of insurance. How are we gonna do that? Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. And you could see, you know, there were leaked tapes from the uh, Republican conversation, but of the challenges that people are putting forward and say, hey, you're not gonna have my constituents not have insurance. You know, you're gonna make sure that these, so, you know, each thing that happens, um, each battle that's fought is also something that is, plays out much further down the line in different kinds of ways. And so, I think there are... Um, Stuart? Sorry, Scott? Sorry. So, I'm a somewhat masochistic student, and I, I listen to talk radio. <laughs> and I get frustrated with... Um, I've characterized the Christian faith being hijacked by certain voices on through those types of outlets. And I, so when I hear people um, like Dennis Prager and Michael Medved uh, representing Judaism, I'm just wondering if you have a similar uh, reaction. I mean, I've been accused of not really being Christian because of some of my more liberal views. I'm wondering if there's a similar divide in the Jewish faith. Well, I mean, there's certainly a similar divide. Um, um, the look, the the Jewish community as a whole in this last election voted about seventy-five percent for uh, the Democratic Party, um, and considering the Orthodox, in, uh, the Orthodoxy votes pretty heavily for the Republican Party. Um, that means in liberal Jewish circles, the, the, the percentages were higher. Um, probably 80% or, or more. Um, not that 20% or 15% isn't a significant population, um, but um, even for those, most are not voting on social issues. They're not social conservatives. They're economic conservatives or, or uh, other kinds of senses. So um, I think we see that. I think we see that now in the administration, that sometimes there's a, a sense that, well, you know, his son-in-law is a Jew, so Jewish interest will be represented. You know, you hear that from, from some or those kinds, of, those kinds of things. And I think, 
You know, it all depends on what you see, first of all, as, uh, as Jewish interest. Um, and there is a divide in the Jewish world. Um, um, one of those divides has become in recent years because as polarized as the um, American polity has become, um, Jews have become divided very strongly, often along Israel lines. Um, uh, and so there's sort of the, um, there are those who would say that, you know, somebody can't be anti-Semitic or can't be, um, uh, you know, has Jewish interest in heart as long as they support Israel, right? So kind of when Bannon was appointed and things like that and most liberal organizations came out and said this is a bad omen for, for Jews, for America, for things like that. And there were people who said, oh, but Breitbart's always been pro-Israel and how can you say that there's anti-Semitic tendencies, right? And others on the left might say, well, those two things don't necessarily, right? People support Israel for very different reasons, right? Christian Zionists support Israel for different reasons than Jews support Israel quite often. And theologically, they don't always turn out so well for us. Um, if, you know, from a, a deep evangelical Christian uh, perspective. So um, I guess my answer in short would be yes, it's problematic. Um, I'm not necessarily any more authentic. I mean, I, I also can't say that they're not authentically Jews or trying to express the way they understand Jewish values and other kinds of ways because. You know, they're learned people, they understand Jewish tradition, they understand it in very different ways than, than I do. Um, and, but I also wouldn't take the other side and say, uh, I would say that uh, the vast majority of Jews in, in America, at least, who take a different uh, policy approach are also authentically expressing uh, their Jewish identity and values. Well, Jonathan and I need to go get ready for worship. However, I encourage you know those of you who are facing this direction to maybe turn around, face that direction. We've got folks from both of our congregations here in the room right now, and you all have about another good 10, 15 minutes that you can talk and share with each other what you feel like Presbyterians and Jews need to uh, to talk about um, in 2017. And I'm going to appoint uh, Scott uh, Randall's moderator uh, because uh, also Don Wu needs to go and get ready for worship. So. Thank you. But uh, don't eat. Okay, uh, before I go, um, I need to make a short announcement for next week. So the next week, we're going to have Octavio and Judy, and they're going to give us updates about the Peru Living Water And thank you for coming. And here's Scott, our moderator, for a copy and reader, and he's going to moderate the conversation.
Thanks. So I, I wouldn't presume to uh, be able to answer any questions, but uh, if there's uh, someone who'd like to open something up for discussion, Nancy? Well, I, I uh, wanted to respond to the question about what can we do, and uh, I think things are happening so fast that we're really feeling, you know, <laughs> exhausted and helpless. But one thing that I've done for a long time is try to support organizations that have power, like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU, uh, which is really being very effective right now. And I, I think that uh, I, I have a sense that I have some power because of these organizations. I just joined the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, I comment on, on that and then Gail. Uh, so I, I'm a woman's marcher now, and there, I mean, that was a pretty powerful weekend last week. And, uh, in case you don't know this, they're doing 10 actions in 100 days. And so the first action is to, uh, as a postcard uh, to our senator. I'm anxiously looking forward to the senator. Uh, also, supporting responsible journalism would be another way to put your money where it would be really important. Gail. Well, I just wanted to call attention to the fact that one of the stories in today's LA Times uh, relates to the Conjo family that some of us have gotten acquainted with uh, because that's where some of the work that um, is being done in the Pomona Valley with this Syrian family that's come. And there are picture, two pictures in the paper, and then they're not quoted extensively, but because they're in the pictures, and the, the name of the pastor from the Pomona Church, Adam, that's sponsoring them, and was part of the concert that we had here. So uh, I was glad that the, that story was picked up, and I think we can be grateful that we already have some contacts with that. Gail, do you know if the second Syrian family is already in the country, or are they part, are they, do they fall under this new edict? No, I don't know anything about that. I just know that there were a few references in today's paper to people that we know. Thank you. Sorry. Are we doing anything to reach out to the Muslim community here? Uh, well, there was a huge community response to that letter, uh, and they had uh, Communal community meetings. Were you there? That community no, meeting. I missed it. Uh, so uh, every faith community pretty much was represented there, and so they know that they have that this, that the city uh, of Claremont's mayor as well as the, the uh, Pomona mayor were both there as well. So they have uh, municipal support as well as uh, faith community, just general community support. I would love to have an interfaith. Uh,
that I would encourage people to do, is, as you're saying, is, is reach out to civil society organizations that we haven't necessarily been members of before. And uh, my mom was a public library, and so was a lifelong ACLU member, but I have never contributed money to the ACLU until this year. All of our Christmas presents were cards saying, we just made you a member of the ACLU. <laughs> 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 we all picked our favorite charity page. Our, our siblings my kids, uh, two of my older and younger children were at Dallas Airport yesterday. Um, and and um, I think that some of it is is to, you know, those of us who are older, I now feel old because I'm almost 60, but I don't really feel like I can go and sit at Dallas Airport for 20 hours at a time. But I think we should encourage people who are going out and doing, putting their bodies in places that, that make a tremendous difference. I think I'm going to go downtown in three hours because there's going to be a demonstration outside the federal building today. Um, and I think some of what was surprising to a lot of people yesterday was how immediate those demonstrations were. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 They were spontaneous. Yeah. And some of it was, just, everybody was all warmed up from last Saturday and already had their signs made. And yeah. Like that. But and there's a, a kid from Claremont High, um, Colin McGrath, who's uh, an attorney. He showed up at Dulles with my son Sam, and they, you know, they made a big sign that said immigration lawyer on it, and they held.